Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a sunny but cool autumn day here in the capital is Ian Taylor. Ian is the chairman of B2B Properties, a specialist property development company addressing lifestyle accommodation for 20 to 35 year olds. Uh, Ian, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you ever so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much, Scott. Um, thank you, Ian, for joining us again. Um, it's a, such a pleasure for us to welcome you onto the airwaves with us. And normally at this point in the show, we dive straight into the subject of leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I would like to start there because for leaders within all walks of life, it's proven to be such a significant challenge. But for yourselves working in the property development industry, um, to what extent has it affected you in your business, this pandemic? It has been challenging. I don't mind saying that at all. Uh, Having said that, it's brought out the best in everyone that we work with in terms of having to be agile and to adapt to the new situation in which we find ourselves. We have two sides to our business. We have the property development side and we run uh, a network of apartments and uh, flats for rental out, many of which happen to go to students. And so uh, the first impact clearly was that the uh, a lot of the students all returned uh, to their homes, many in our case of which are overseas, back in March. And so we initially had to pivot uh, the business model very quickly to adapt to the changing needs. And we work very closely with our first responders and other essential workers to provide them with accommodation when many of the hotels were closing. So we, we learned very quickly about a whole new uh, line of business. Um, the property side is clearly affected very greatly by the uncertainty that's surrounding all of us, some of it presenting new opportunities, some of it closing down established lines. So we are working very, very hard uh, across the team to uh, adapt ourselves to where the business is going to be for the next 12 to 18 months. Being a small company, clearly cash and uh, keeping busy is a very high priority for us. And whilst we have a long-term strategy, we have long-term goals, making sure that we are being successful in the short term means that we can look after our people and our clients as best as possible. And of course, one of the big questions hanging over the uh, the property sector at the moment, particularly the commercial property industry, is what's going to become of our working practices, whether small businesses, small, medium-sized and large, need their 
commercial office space, whether they're going to jettison that, start to move toward more of a work from home model because of this experience. Um, from your point of view, Ian, do you think that we'll ever see the conventional office environment ever return in vogue? Or can you see a move toward that sort of remote working sort of more fully or maybe on a hybrid basis? I don't see things going back to how they used to be. When we've had previous um, upsets, when we had the financial crash, when we had the dot-com crash, when we had uh, 9-11, they conformed more closely to what the economists would call the V model, and things came back up again quite quickly before the culture, the working culture, had time to, to change and adapt. I think now with a combination of the time that the COVID uh, pandemic is with us and with the increasing availability and familiarity of the remote tools uh, enabled by broadband and smartphones and remote working, I, I don't see it going back to how it used to be. Uh, that's true for commercial office space and, as has been widely uh, pronounced upon, the, the high street and people's shopping habits. So the quick answer is, no, I don't see it going back. I see companies are adapting themselves very quickly to uh, a more of a hybrid model, and I see that as being a long-term change in the structure of commercial property in the UK and more widely. Certainly is going to be an interesting time from that point of view. And um, just reflecting on the experience that you sort of had over the last few months in your leadership capacity, um, I understand, of course, you've learned quite a lot about sort of different revenue streams, as you've uh, mentioned there, and uh, different ones that aren't going to hold up as well during this time. But is there anything you've learned about sort of the resilience of your staff and your business as well and um, how sort of their mental health and well-being has held up over all of this? As pretty much every leader says, and I will say it as well, the people are the core of what we do. Mm. They have, we as a business have a very strong ethical prism. We look after our people very closely because they will be the ones looking after us. And so we've, uh, initially we, uh, we got very close all the key suppliers that we have to make sure that they are well, to make sure that they're stable and make sure that we have a way of working together that meets both their practical and emotional needs through this difficult time. So, so it did enable us to come a lot closer to our key suppliers and partners. Over several years, we've worked closely with a local uh, charity which focuses on mediation services and is very much around uh, finding finding ways, finding a win-win. It's uh, overused, but it, it's really important. Uh, finding a way of working together with people and avoiding conflict. It's restorative justice, restorative mm. ways of working together. So finding a mutual understanding of what works for both was something we started off doing very early on. Mm. And that, that's really 
improve the quality of the relationships we have with our, our key partners. So I think what it's forced us to do is to look very, very closely at the totality of the partner we're working with rather than just uh, that's more of a transactional basis. And of course you and, mentioned... Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, go on, Ian. Sorry. Uh, and I'd like to say that has been very satisfying I think for all concerned. That's certainly encouraging to uh, to hear there. And um, you mentioned there, of course, the importance of conflict resolution quite early on and um, the importance of sustaining good relationships there. Um, as human beings, of course, we're not infallible and conflict within the workplace is sometimes an inevitability. So what are some of the strategies that you use to deal with that as and when it does arise to keep relationships positive? Uh, we certainly haven't been without our sets of people challenges. What we do is to face them head on very quickly. So a face-to-face meeting uh, at the earliest possible juncture to make sure we understand, or first of all, recognize that they recognize there's an issue. And when there is, to sit down and listen very closely to where they're coming from. So one of the key elements of the restorative justice process, which I think is actually great management training for anybody who is dealing with people, and that's most of us, is to understand what the issue is as the other party sees it and working out what a a solution can look like that meets both people's needs rather than everyone just reiterating the problems that they see. And thinking about um, the sort of age group that you essentially your business works for, 20 to 35 year olds, I can imagine there are a lot of people out there right now within that age group that are quite disheartened by what the COVID-19 pandemic has done to their employment prospects. So as a business leader yourself, do you have a message for younger generations of people that may be looking on at this um, to really get them to pick up their heads and really get them on the road to success during such a trying time? I think there is no one size fits all. I think people need to look back at what they, what their attitude set is to start with to make sure they have a positive personal reference frame and to make sure they have a very clear idea of what they have to offer uh, a potential employer and so they can be very clear in themselves what they're out to achieve. Some have found quite quick success, others perhaps working in sectors that have been more impacted such as let's say hospitality Mm. um, are having to rethink very deeply what they'd hope to do. A remarkable number have been successful in getting their first job or getting a new job without ever having physically met their new employer or gone to their premises. And I find that very heartening. So it's about sharpening up the skills that are going to be crucial going forwards. 
I agree with that. I think that certainly is going to be critical going forward from here. And thinking about going forward from here and the future, just before we do wrap things up on the programme today, we know that over the course of the next 12 months, the new normal is going to be here to stay for a significant portion of that at least. And it may well be here for all of it. We may well have a working vaccine. We might not. There are still a great many variables in this. But with what's projected to be out there, what are you really hoping to achieve at your business over the year, the next 12 months, Ian? And where do you see yourselves being this time in a year? We're very buoyant about the business uh, environment, quite frankly. We see a lot of opportunities and a lot of work that can be done. There is uh, the changes in the high street, the changes in the commercial office environment are such that People will need uh, a better quality of accommodation um, and there will be new building opportunities as well. You may be aware that the government has been increasingly uh, relaxing some of the planning requirements for converting residential and potentially retail properties into more of a hybrid solution, providing accommodation as well as the business environment. We see that as a really positive change, and I think certainly for our target uh, age group, one that will be very, um, very well accepted. So I think our challenge, our main challenge for the next 12 months, will be to find investors who share the same confidence who want to come on the journey with us. And let's certainly hope that there are people who do want to embark on that journey as well. And that is fundamentally what leadership is all about, taking people with you on that journey and on that vision. And Ian, I think just given how enlightening it's been having you join us on the programme today, I actually think it would be wonderful to catch up at some point in this next 12 months and welcome you back onto our programme just to get a better idea of how things are starting to develop in that sense. And we can also reassess at that point in time exactly what's changed in the time between and where we are as a country. I would be delighted to uh, come back and share where we've got to. I think that would be fantastic, Ian. It's been such a pleasure welcoming you onto the show today. And let's hope um, in future there will be some positive news to share. Until then, however, please do take care and stay safe with everything that's still going on. Because what is for sure at the moment is we're certainly not out of the woods with this COVID-19 situation yet. But let's just hope that we won't be stuck in the rut for too much longer. I completely concur. Thank you very much for your time today and the the platform to uh, share some thoughts. It certainly is what we're all about, getting the authentic voices of British industry out there. And I would reiterate that last message to every single one of the listeners tuning into today's podcast. Please do continue to stay well, look after yourselves and be considerate of others because it makes such a difference in saving lives during this time. Uh, For me, it was a pleasure to welcome Ian Taylor, chairman of B2B Properties, onto the show. Um, Joining us next on the programme will be Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman Lord Blunkett, who enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth. He served as the MP for the Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years, as well as holding a number of senior positions in the Cabinet of Tony Blair during the latter's premiership. Um, Lord Blunkett has been a member of the House of Lords since August 2015, when he was appointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough, his old constituency. And I do hope that you all 
enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. That is, of course, coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from 
knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in and if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility that will be a very positive outcome absolutely now what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this are you broadly supportive of their measures well it may surprise people to hear that that i have been very supportive of course there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK, we, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in 
maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. 
However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time 
provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. 
we don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and 
um, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer, and I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways... Uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good ideas to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince skeptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, 
not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.